tonight we're talking about who is this Jesus? There wasn't really a title for this lecture I could give that someone hasn't given to a book already. Uh, this topic has been written on a lot. Um, but really, it's trying to get behind the curtain of the Gospels and looking at who is this historical Jesus. Is he, a, is he historical or is he not? And so really, the question I want to start is, is, is Friday actually good? Is this Friday any good? Um, now, annually, we, on Good Friday, remember the crucifixion of Jesus. And, <clears throat> well, others claimed to be messiahs they were also they also died or killed often in battle or in some kind of waging war against the roman empire and they all died but this common jewish um, rabbi uh, or teacher was crucified and and yet we have lots of stories about him not only in the bible but even some evidence of him outside of the Bible. Now, often people will speak about, is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? Have you heard that before? He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Now, that, that assumes that he's either, from what he's claimed to be God, to be the Messiah, either, uh, and these sayings that were recorded, either he was lying, and he wasn't who he said, and he actually did die and didn't rise again from the grave. Or he was crazy for making such claims, and he died, remained in the grave. Or he rose again, and therefore he was Lord. Well, the two options I'm giving you tonight say, liar, lunatic, Lord, who cares? Those are not our options. Those are not the only three options. Jesus could be legendary, a legend. Or Jesus could be um, uh, like a figment of uh, the imagination, a myth. The other one says, oh, no, he was a historical figure, but he failed. And then people produced legendary material around him as they tried to understand him theologically. They, had, they were so desperate that they created out of their desperation a Messiah, a hope, a Lord. So we're going to look at both of those. And now what I've been doing is uh, looking at this book called The Christian Delusion. And Christian Delusion was written uh, on the coattails of Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, who says that science proves that God does not exist. Um, well, and showed that religion was dangerous. It was in the, in the realm of the new atheists who consider religion dangerous, particularly after 9-11. Well, these are, this book is particularly about Christianity, the Christian delusion. And it's done by people who claim to be Christians and then now have given it up. Some were pastors or priests. Some were raised in the church and all of them have given it up. And now they're coming back and they want to accuse Christianity as being false. And so I've dealt with that in various parts. I've dealt with does faith fail? Is the Bible truly inspired? Is God good? Well, tonight I'm dealing with the historicity of Jesus. And the part in the book is saying Jesus is not the risen Lord. Well, um, it's Dr. Robert Price and, and Dr. Carrier, who are both mythicists. They both contribute essays. 
Um, and Price writes one called Jesus, Myth and Method, wants to describe how Jesus is just like the other myths of the ancient culture. Carrier speaks about um, how the resurrection is unbelievable. It fails to be believed. And then John Luftus talks about Jesus as the failed apocalyptic prophet. Now, um, he doesn't deal with Jesus as a historical figure. He seemed, uh, and it's interesting that he doesn't include someone named Bart Ehrman, who is a leading figure on talking about Jesus as a historical figure, but failed prophet. Um, so I decided instead of going point by point or toe to toe with these essayists, um, I decided to make it more interesting for you to lay it out in more general basic outlines of their positions. Um, and so tonight I'm gonna to look at three alternatives, three stories to explain why we have what we have in the Bible and who Jesus is. The first one is Jesus is a myth. Christ, I should say Christ is a myth because Jesus was not, did not exist. Uh, Jesus was not historical, Christ was a myth. The second one is that Jesus was historical, but he died. He was buried and he did not come up from the grave. Uh, but there was legendary materials brought around him or theological reflection around him. That's the second option. Christ is myth. Jesus is historical, but failed. And then the third one is Jesus is Christ, the Messiah, and he's Lord. So the traditional position. So you can probably know which direction I'm going to lean, but that's where I'm going. I want to look at who they are, uh, what these, why they, why they think these categories and what are the arguments against them. And then I will open it up and we'll have a discussion. You can ask any question and we can discuss across the aisle to one another, or you can ask questions of me. But this is good, okay? So why would they claim that Christ is a myth? Um, someone like Carrier or Price or many others, they're called mythicists. Well, first of all, they would just say miracles are un improbable. We don't see people getting fed 5,000 loaves of bread um, or being fed by a couple of loaves. Um, and we certainly, uh, we don't see someone healed or raised from the grave as Lazarus was called from the grave. And we certainly don't see anyone rising again from the dead as the so-called resurrection account um, details. So it's just improbable. Uh, Carrier says it fails the smell test. It just doesn't smell right. Um, he says that's what historians actually do. They just look at a story and they just, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't believe, it's not believable. So that's actually one criteria uh, um, for the mythicist. It just doesn't seem possible or even probable. Also, uh, Carrie would say there's no external evidence of a historical Jesus and the resurrection outside of believers' accounts. Uh, there is evidence of Christians, but not of this figure. Um, now, I'll explain more of that later, but someone might say, well, what about Josephus? And that's who Carrier goes after, and that's who many people go after. Now, Josephus was 
a Jewish man, a, a wealthy Jewish elite. And he um, fought Rome, but then they failed. And then he aligned himself with Rome, uh, which made him hated by many Jewish people. But he ended up becoming a historian, or he was a historian and wrote a lot. And um, he wrote a book called Antiquities. And he's one of the most important uh, first century, second century uh, writer. And this is what Josephus says. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. He appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. So, uh, so he's saying Jesus is wise. Uh, he's, he did miracles, that he's the Messiah, that he appeared the third day, and that the prophets foretold of these things. The problem is, is that most people don't think Josephus, a Jew who doesn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, would say such things. They think Christians later on came and inserted that into Josephus's work. That's called an interpolation, that they entered this text into this ancient document. And this is what Carrier claims, that Josephus would not have written such a thing. And that anything else is, yeah, okay, maybe there's a mention of a crucifixion, but that's just hearsay of what other Christians said. So Carrier said there's no external evidence. I mean, if Jesus was such a miracle worker and really rose again from the dead and all these things happened around him, why isn't there like books and books about him, even from people who opposed him? Why is it only the believers who happen to have accounts of him? So miracles don't happen. There's not really any external evidence for him. And even the earliest biblical texts. So the very first documents in the New Testament uh, historically would be considered Paul's letters. Uh, but Carrier says Paul does not believe that Jesus is historical. He thinks he's, he believes that Paul, like the others, made up this fiction that Christ was a mythical figure. Um, that there's no mention of his birth. There's no mention of the place of his death. There's no mention of Pontius Pilate. Jesus was mentioned as crucified, but that happened in the heavenly realm. Well, you think, I, I don't remember Paul talking about Christ dying in the heavenly realm by principalities and powers, by demonic forces in the heavenly realms. Well, Carrier would point to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul wrote that in Corinthians. Well, rulers is the Greek word archons. And age, translated age there, the rulers of the age is eons. So the archons of this eon. Well, mythicists say that archons can be translated as principalities or powers. And eons means age or a realm, like a heavenly realm. And so Paul speaks about these revelations he received not by men, but by Christ himself. And, and he, was, he would ascend to the heavenlies and, and, and have this experience of Christ. 
and so Carrie and Price argue <clears throat> that this points to Jesus as this crucified angel in the heavens by the principalities and powers. And this is why in chapter in verse 9 of chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians, is that that's why the Spirit must reveal these things. Otherwise, they'd be human insights. There'd be observable history. Well, what about if you know your Bible really well, better than me, you know in 1 Timothy that Paul writes, well, Jesus Christ, uh, Christ Jesus was, gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate. Well, Carrier would say, well, that's not an authentic Paul letter. That's a forgery. Um, there's lots of forgeries in the name of Paul. And this mention, just um, this is a part of his pastoral epistles. This is debated as to be from Paul. It's most likely not Paul. And Christians tended to forge documents. So why almost believe anything in the New Testament? Uh, Christians are just forgers and liars. <clears throat> well, what about the Gospels? Well, he says those are not history. They're clearly mythological. They're intended to be read as myth. They're not intended to be read as history. He says that first they're written in high Greek literary art. Uh, so doesn't sound but much like fishermen from Galilee. <laughs> uh, and so these people would have been trained in Greek myths and in the style of writing. So um, chiasm, which is kind of a poetic form of writing a narrative, inclusios or something called Markin sandwiches. Sounds like something you get at the deli, but basically it's putting the, the meat, the important piece in the middle, and then putting two, line, two verses or two stories on top and bottom to emphasize something in the middle. Mark does that throughout his gospel. And so Carrier says, okay, and Price would agree. Obviously, what the gospel writers are doing is high literary art. And of course, they don't believe this to be a, a historical figure. Otherwise, they would have written a chronological account. They would have talked about his birth. They would have talked about his life and talked about his death and all the historical details that were necessary for a biography. But this is so literary, so artistic, so poetic, it must be mythical. It wants you to see that it's mythical. In fact, as another part of this, the gospel accounts are not historical, is that they use emulation. Um, now, biblical scholars would call this Old Testament allusions, referring to the Old Testament. Now, you would see, like, make, maybe in Mark saying, well, Isaiah said, foretold in this place. And you say, okay, well, this is where the author is pointing back to the Old Testament so that you might know. Well, the, the gospel writers go further than that. They make Jesus look like the new Moses. Um, and so Jesus is on the mount and saying, it is written, but I say. Well, it's not even just that. It's that, uh, you know, Jesus is walking in the wilderness. He has power over the waters. He defeats uh, the demonic in the Canaanite woman and, and so on. And so he's actually being retold in this very formal, stylistic way to be like a new Moses, that he does things just like Moses did, but better. So obviously, the gospel writers do not think of Jesus as a historical figure. They believe that he's a myth, that he's a reconstruction of their mythology, that you look to Jewish scriptures and then recast him into Jewish mythology. 
Uh, you should know that Carrier doesn't believe that Moses is a real person either. <clears throat> and this isn't even to mention the various forms of the Gnostic Gospels found in the, the tombs, the, the, those caves, not tombs, caves. Uh, and what Carrier says is that what happened is that these people in the caves have documents that are half forgeries. They're, they're halfway through these forgeries of forging letters and, uh, and having different gospel accounts that we call now the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas and so forth. And that when they were about to be found, they dumped the desktop into the clay pot because the institution is going to burn, they're gonna get caught. And so they run away from the evidence of what they're doing. But now we found that desktop, we found this, this papyrus, these, this evidence from Nag Hammadi, that there were other gospels and there were um, these Gnostic accounts, which showed that Christians, like I said, were forgers and liars all along. <clears throat> okay, so if this is true, then what it, how might we tell the story of early Christianity? What does early Christian life look like? How were these documents come about? And so I'm giving a back. So when you're looking at historical data, you're trying to tell the story behind the data to make sense of it. Okay, we just like a crime scene. Okay, well, there's the gun here and there's the the bloody cloth here and here's the, the lights broken and oh, there's a footprint. And you try to sort them into a narrative while carriers finding this evidence and trying to put it into a narrative. Now, sometimes you can create a narrative to make the evidence fit. So what is the mythological, what's the mythicist story of early Christianity, of Jesus and of the gospels? Why do we have the Bible as it is, and how did Christians become such a powerful force in the world? Okay, so here's their story. Um, uh, so I've got this from Patchwork. I haven't found a place where they just lay it out, but I've heard it from bits and pieces here, interviews, debates, podcasts, and so forth. But uh, so the Jewish people were religiously tied to something called the temple cult, or what he calls the temple cult. Uh, this meant that they had to do yearly animal sacrifices to get that magic blood to work for them, to atone for their sin. And they were beholden to this place. They had to go and do these rituals and pay these tithes. Um, and at the same time, they were under this Roman oppression. And the Romans oppressed them. Uh, and the Jewish people, as you can see in the Gospels and even outside the Gospels, that the Jewish people really struggled with Roman oppression. They wanted to know how to fight politically. In fact, you can see the Essenes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Zealots are not just theologically different, doctrinally different, but they're politically different. They think of, oh, we should pay temple tax or we shouldn't. That's why they went to Jesus and asked, should we pay taxes? They're trying to catch him into a political debate, an economic debate. And Jesus skirts around it. Well, um, Carrier saying, okay, there's these Jewish groups, they're divided politically, and they're tired of Roman oppression. And the ones that are the strongest are a part of the temple cult, the Pharisees. And so there's these, this outlier Jewish sect 
that's just tired and feel like, okay, the Pharisees are corrupt. We need to overthrow. So we, maybe we can have something more universal. Uh, maybe we can mash it up Jewish mythology with Greek mythology. And so we're going to mash it up and we're going to create something new because gods die and rise all the time. So maybe we need to create a new mindset to be more political power, more politically powerful. So they looked into their scriptures. They found this Jewish angel, Jesus and their angelology. Uh, okay. Well, maybe they can think of how he might have died in the heavens uh, by these demonic forces and that, Somehow this person is the Messiah that opens the way to a universal mindset that can incorporate the Gentiles and the Jews. Like if we, if we mash up this Greek and the Jewish mythology, then we can bring Gen Jew and Gentile together and create a new mindset. Now, the problem is, is that you're going to have an illiterate mob of people who are simple-minded. And they're not going to understand all this mythology, and they're going to be a little bit... Uh, suspicious of what you're doing so what they're going so these priests these this literati who knew about greek mythology jewish mythology and they decided okay well we can't tell the masses the truth we have to pretend that it's historical and so what we're going to do is that we're going to forge documents and make up stories that make them sound historical but to the discerning eye uh, so jesus told in parables a carrier says Mark tells lots of parables and Jesus explains to the parables uh, to the masses that tell parables. But to those who understand, um, if those who see, those who hear, have ears to hear, then hear. Well, carrier says that Mark is saying, wink, wink. If you're smart enough and you know the mythology, you know that we're just playing a game here. But the masses don't. <clears throat> and so, uh, and if they start questioning, like you can see this, you can see this in Second Peter, Carrier says, which he does not consider to be a document from Peter. He thinks is a forgery. He says, we did not devise clever myths. If you remember Peter saying that. Yeah. Well, Carrier says, well, there's Christians who are like, hey, I don't think that's in the Bible, the Old Testament. And they're just like, hey, hey, don't ask questions. Do you think we made this up? Sit down and be quiet. And, and you know, if you don't agree with this, you're going to burn forever. Okay? This is what Carrier thinks. So this literati is trying to control masses to believe certain things so they can have political power. And if they disagree, then they will burn. They will be condemned. <clears throat> so... Uh, so no one should question them. And if there were people strong enough to create evidence, well, that was scrubbed. Uh, they erased that history. So what we see is that there's no evidence of contrary, um, no contrary evidence. Uh, people being contrary to the Christian revolution, really. Um, and so he says, look, this lack of evidence is evidence. This lack of evidence is proof that the Christians scrubbed history because they didn't want you to know the real truth. And thankfully, we have the Gnostic Gospels come out of Nonhamity to expose this clever ruse that Christians have always perpetrated. They love to make secrets, they like to condemn, and they like power. 
That's how Christians have always been, and that's how they started. So in brief, there were a small Jewish sect who created a mythology so that the illiterate would eat it up and become mobilized as a political religious force to take over the ancient world. That's Carrier's view. It became so powerful that they had control over the text and they could silence those who disagreed. So you may be thinking I'm talking about a movie called The Da Vinci Code. And if you think that, you're right. It's pretty much the same theories are going on, almost. So what did they hope with this power-hungry uh, desire? Well, they wanted, their, they wanted their followers to love to the extent that Christ loved, even to death on a cross, to love their enemies, to not be self-interested, but to be in, interested in others. Well, that makes no sense. Why would they be power-hungry to teach people kindness and ethics. And so Dr. Price says that um, David Hume, who was the father of skepticism, uh, I'm not going to, you can understand skepticism, and says that we should not accept a supernatural explanation unless the natural explanation is more far-fetched. If the naturalistic explanation is not as good as the supernatural explanation, um, we should accept the natural explanation. I wanna say that the supernatural explanation that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah died on the cross and rose again, and that somehow these simple fishermen became bold in the public marketplace and created a large massive social revolution through the death of uh, the leaders and the death and, and reconciling men and women, slaves and masters, and Jews and Gentiles, uh, I would say that supernatural explanation is more reasonable than the idea that these small fishermen or these, these small Jewish sect was going to take over the world. If you gave them the power and you gave them the myths, and we know that we can take over the world in just mm, around 300 years, it makes no sense. But, is there another naturalistic explanation that's better than the supernaturalistic one that I just gave? So we don't have to take the mythicist account, which I think fails. And that's why so much of it is not considered serious. Um, I think that there is a better naturalistic account than theirs, which is that Jesus was historical but failed. But before I get to that, I want to question the mythicist um, uh, the points of contact that I mentioned earlier uh, that Carrier and Price and other mysticists says, okay, the miracles are improbable um, and there's <clears throat> no external evidence. There's the earliest Pauline that Paul did not see Jesus as historical and that the gospels don't count as history because they're literary. I just wanted to deal with that before I move on. Okay, because this, in order to attack the mythicists, I have to prove that it's historical. And then we can move into the next section. So why not believe the mythicist story beyond it being far-fetched? One, I want to question, and I rarely do this, but I want to question the character of the mythicists. So they claim to be held by scholars, scholarship. They often mention peer-reviewed literature and mainline opinion. 
you hear this all the time from Carrier who, who says, he makes one statement and says, and this is peer reviewed. He makes this statement and this peer reviewed. In this belief, all people hold this, all scholarship holds this. The mainline opinion agrees with me. Well, it's around 100 to 200 scholars who believe these kind of things. Um, who, but they only accept people who think the Bible is not true. They only accept belief, they only accept scholarship from those who believe the Bible is to be false. And so they deny the 7,000 biblical scholars that disagree. So it's a handful of people who say that it's all made up. And if you disagree with that, then we cannot consider you a true scholar. Carrier says that people with faith commitments to believe that the Bible is true has clouded their judgment. Also, I want to question the character because there's such there's signs of such bad interpretation. Um, Carrier, not in the book, but says <clears throat> Jesus had a boyfriend. This is a part of his interpretation. The disciple whom he loved, who reclined in the bosom of Jesus. Carrier refers to this as you see this young man cuddled with Jesus for hours. Now, I almost feel like I shouldn't have to explain this. But this is not what the text means. First, in the bosom is a Jewish idiom of saying in the company of, a close intimate company of, and Carrier over-sexualizes the ancient culture, particularly one that wrote explicitly against homosexual behavior. So it makes absolutely no sense to include it if it were true. Let's say Jesus did have a boyfriend. Why would these ancient Jewish and Greek authors include it for Jewish people to believe? It makes no sense. And then also just to state that a lack of evidence is evidence that there's tampering. That Carrier says since there's not much uh, opposing Christian texts in the beginning shows evidence that there was tampering. So the lack of evidence proves that there was evidence of tampering. I think it's ridiculous. Okay, the more serious criticism, well, not more serious criticism, the more common criticisms. There's also plenty of historical evidence from non-Christian authors about what can be known of early Christians and of Jesus himself. Uh, you could point to Luke. Uh, this is uh, not Luke throughout the book of Acts mentions people's titles, people's names, uh, and places. Now, titles and names and places could shift. And so sometimes Luke would say something that didn't seem right. But archaeological evidence has found that actually it corroborates what he said, that someone was in this position. Well, there can't be two people in this same position historically, but they would find evidence elsewhere that actually that's in fact what happened because it was an overlay when until someone was able to be put in place. So it shows that Luke's 
nuanced details, because he's the one who says in the days of Tiberius, et cetera, et cetera. So Luke really wants to emphasize historical detail. Um, and outside external evidence corroborates. However, we have to say that we can't make too much of this uh, because some people say, well, Carrier would even say the what makes myths really good is that they take minor details that are true, but then they create a whole myth around this. So it's the central figures that you have to find. Is there evidence for the central characters like Paul, like Jesus? So I don't need to know about Tiberius. Everyone knows there's a Tiberius, but no one knows that there's a Jesus necessarily. So you make a myth by using the little reference and excluding the main reference. Well, there's lots of writings about Christians and why they believe what they believe outside of the Bible. Uh, these quotes are too long for me to spend time on them, but Tacitus, a Roman historian around, um, 55 to 120 common era, so AD, wrote histories of ancient Rome. He wrote that during the reign of Nero, that, uh, let me just read a little bit of it. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace, from whom the name had its, uh, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Um, and what he goes on to say is that Nero would would go that he blamed them for a fire that happened in Rome, though it was just because of his, uh, because of economic policies that left it kind of dire uh, without enough infrastructure. And so it burnt down, but he wanted to blame somebody, not himself. So he blamed the Christians for starting the fire. And so he would put them on posts in his garden and set them aflame. Then you have Suetonius, another Roman historian at the same time, who makes similar observations about Christians and this figure, Christus. Um, Pliny the Younger was a Roman author around the same time as Tacitus and Suetonius. And he, he was sent out to figure out why the pagan temples and the pagan festivals were not really lucrative and not doing very well in a little area called Bithynia. Well, he got there and found out there was a group of Christians. So you, maybe you remember in the book of Acts, Paul comes in and there's a riot in Ephesus because no one's buying their Artemis habitations, their, their Artemis shrines. And so they're like, this guy preaching this message is actually ruining our economy. Well, that's what's happening in Bithynia. And so Pliny the Younger is sent out to figure out and going to report to Emperor Trajan about what's going on. And so this is, he writes to Emperor Trajan about these people. They, that's the Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, but to never commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust, 
when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then re reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. So he's basically explaining Sabbath. The Christians are going to church. They're singing songs about this Christ that they worship as a God. And, um, and they tried, they promised one another that they're going to be ethical. And this is why this happened. And so that, so what Pliny the younger does is interrogate them. Are you really a Christian or not? If you tell me that you're a Christian, you could die punishable by death. But if you recant and you, and you, repent by making offerings to the gods and worshiping emperor trajan then you'll be forgiven okay well some didn't uh, um, there were even two female slaves who were deaconesses in the church who didn't and they were martyred but there were people who said no 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 i'll recant and gave it up and emperor trajan writes back and says good for you glad that you did that good work because we don't want people to go against the Roman Empire and their gods because that's, that hurts our society. Uh, and then I guess one of the last things I'll have is you even have in Jewish literature around the same time, this is very interesting, that this is a section called the Sanhedrin. So it's like Sanhedrin documents. And it's around between 70 to 200 AD or common era. And it says, on the eve of Passover, Yeshu was hanged, which sounds very much like Jesus was hanged. <clears throat> um, and then I could go on and on. But just for sake of time, there's also someone named Lucian that is a Greek historian or satirist, but I won't go into that. Just do for time. <clears throat> so you have lots and lots of external evidence, non-Christian evidence, that there were Christians praising Jesus as the Messiah, as a God risen from the dead. Okay. What's another argument against the mythicists? Is that, and this is what Bart Ehrman, who I'm going to get to in a minute, would never ever argue for a dying Messiah. Yeah, you might have myths about dying gods and rising gods, but no one, the Messiah was someone that the Jews looked for to come as a warrior, to dominate the foreign powers, and to liberate Israel to be the leading power. So you don't write about a Messiah who dies unless it really happened. And so the only way to make sense of Jesus as a Messiah who was crucified, according to Paul, was that it really happened. Because there's no room for why he would argue that. It defeats the purpose. Especially in such a shameful death. In such a shameful death. And then Ermon gets into the actual exegesis, the actual interpretation of Paul's letters. So you remember that one, the archons of this eon, the, that, that Christ was crucified in the heavenlies by demonic powers. Well, Bart Ermon's like, archons almost never means that. And almost always means earthly rulers. Uh, whenever Paul uses the word archons, even in Romans 13, it says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear to the one who is in authority over you? Well, apparently, he's, he's talking about earthly rulers there. He's talking about earthly government. And so, um, so this passage where 
Paul says the rulers of this age are obviously earthly rulers who crucified Jesus. Elsewhere, Paul speaks about Jesus being born of a woman. Well, Carrier says, well, no, no, no. That word is not born. It's manufactured. The Greek word is manufactured. Well, that's true. Um, and some later people copying the gospel would change that word to born rather than manufactured. But there's only two other times that Paul uses this word, manufactured, is that Adam, the first human, was manufactured by God. And then, um, uh, and then the, the resurrected body would be manufactured. So it would be like an, it would be an unusual birth, something that God divinely orchestrated into new life. That is the word used of Jesus in relation to this woman. So born of a woman, but brought into existence by divine power through a woman is what Paul is saying. And then one of the, 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 the one that kills the mythicists altogether is that when uh, Jesus is talking about eyewitnesses of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8, he refers to Peter, um, or was it, maybe it was in Galatians, sorry. But, Peter, um, but Paul is talking about meeting Peter and James, the brother of the Lord. Well, there's only two ways to understand the word brother when you read Paul's letters. One means the brother in Christ. So because Jesus is the son and died for you, he now calls you brothers and sisters. So that's one way of understanding brother. But if it's not that one, it has to be biological. Well, he says, I met Peter and James, the brother of the Lord. He doesn't say the brothers of the Lord. So Carrier has to make up a third option to say, actually, there was this elite little group called the Brothers of the Lord that were special. And, you know, this, it, it gets too unbelievable to take him seriously. Um, <clears throat> the reason Paul didn't speak about the historical details of the birth and all that stuff is because he assumed it. And he was trying to give the theological meaning of these things rather than giving a biography of Jesus. Okay. So that's why the mythicist's argument is weak. And um, even though it, it, it gives us a lot of to think about, uh, but it can't be taken seriously. <clears throat> so I've already given good reasons why to believe Jesus is historical and not merely mythical. But there's someone like Bart Ehrman, a former Christian fundamentalist who's now begun to attack Christians. And he loves to argue Christian apologists. I would be a little unsteady to have to argue with Bart Ehrman. He knows his Bible inwards and outwards, and he teaches agnosticism like a preacher. He's very engaging, very interesting, very likable, in my opinion, uh, very sincere, very serious, but ultimately I will disagree with him. So I don't question his character as I question the character of the others. But he believes that Jesus would be historical, but why does he not believe that he's Lord? Well, uh, he doesn't believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. Well, what does he think? Well, his primary problem is that he thinks the gospel accounts are unreliable, untrustworthy, 
in error. He says a simple student could take the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John side by side and to try to figure out what historically happened. And what you're going to find out is contradictions. <clears throat> and then he will also argue that what you see in Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John is a theological development that happened around Jesus. Jesus was this historical fig figure who died, but in their desperation and hope, created legendary tales around him in order to create a Jesus so that Christianity kind of evolved around this figure of Jesus and the different theological beliefs about him. So let me take those in turn. First, the Gospels are unreliable and trustworthy. So he says, yeah, okay, <clears throat> some contradictions can be explained. And he says, in fact, I used to argue about these contradictions and say that they could be explained. He goes, I don't do that anymore. He goes, but okay, there are some contradictions that are easy to explain. Um, you, you have one angel rather than two angels at their tomb of Jesus. Well, okay, well, some people might refer to one to include the two, or some might just say the two. He goes, yeah, okay, you can do that. That's, that, that's an explanation. He goes, but there's others that are irreconcilable. They cannot be put together. They both cannot be true. Um, he says, consider Judas Iscariot's death. One says that he was hung and that the priests took the money that Judas had. Judas threw the money at them. He went to hang himself. And they took the money and said, well, we can't keep this in the treasury because this was blood money. And so they bought a field. And that's why it's called the field of blood. <clears throat> well, in Acts 1, verse 18, Luke, the author of Acts, says that, um, uh, let me quote. Now, this man, speaking of Judas, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood. So here are the differences. Judas buys the field, not the priests. The blood is because his blood gushed out, uh, but in Matthew, it's the field of blood because it was bought with blood money. One, Judas is hung, the other one is he fell headlong and his intestines fell out. Or you could consider the genealogy of Jesus. Look at Matthew and look at Luke. There's who's Joseph's father. Seems like it's two different figures. Those are irreconcilable. Those are just two examples. I'll deal with those in a minute. Okay. <laughs> Furthermore, he says that not only do we see these apparent contradictions that are irreconcilable, therefore, the gospel accounts are obviously reconstructions of a figure. They're not historical fact. They're partly made up. There's a historical figure, but partly made up. Um, <clears throat> he goes, but also you see that through these gospels, a theological development, uh, an evolution of Jesus, Yes. Um, so in one lecture, he says, compare the Council of Nicaea. Is Jesus of God? Is he true God of true God? 
um, and having these questions, or was he adopted as the son of God, or was he, or was he by nature God? And Council of Nicaea decided. Well, he goes, that's a long way from the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus was simply a Messiah talking about the kingdom of God that was imminent. And most of the time, there's confusion about who is this? Is this the Messiah? Is it not? And then by the end, there's an empty tomb and the women are terrified. The end. Hmm. So he's saying, well, what you see is in Mark, you see a very rudimentary understanding of Jesus. So right after that, then Matthew expands and says, okay, well, let, we need to, Mark starts with the baptism, but let's start with the birth. Okay, who's the mother? And, and, and let's talk about these other things. And yeah, there's this kingdom of God, but let's do more teaching. And uh, he's a bit more of a regal figure. For, and so Matthew wrote to the Jewish people. And then Luke was written not long after that or around the same time writing to Gentiles, and he says, okay, I'm going to give an orderly account. Well, Luke doesn't just include the birth, the baptism birth. He also talks about Elizabeth. And, and then he talks about the development of Christianity. Uh, and then you get to John. John is a strange book. I mean, there's I am statements. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection I am the shepherd. I am the gate. Um, uh, and so <clears throat> Herman says, okay, if Jesus said these things, I am God, why doesn't Mark include it? Why doesn't Matthew include it? Why doesn't um, Luke include it? It seems like by the time you get to John, he's no longer. And, and what you see in John, there's not much talk about the kingdom of God. It's much more about forbearance. Um, uh, it's more Jesus making these kind of cryptic I am statements. It's just a different Jesus than what you get of this itinerant preacher preaching the kingdom of God and using miracles. And so uh, by looking at these contradictions and then looking at the changes of the gospel accounts, you see that there's a tradition that has developed, but not so perfectly. That's Ehrman's belief. So what's the historical account of Ehrman? <clears throat> what story might be made of the New Testament in early Christianity? Now, again, I don't have a laid out statement by Ehrman. I tried to find it. Uh, I have not read his copious books, but I believe that I'm giving him due uh, a right interpretation of what he would say because of what I have patched together. So he would say Jesus was a historical figure who was understood as the Messiah, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God. He died, he was crucified, and he stayed buried. However, soon after that, perhaps out of desperation, out of all their hopes placed on this figure to be the Messiah, that they had hallucinations or visions or something happened to them that made them believe that they did truly see Jesus. Because people lose their loved ones and they see, they see those people. I can say I myself saw my father in my dreams for like a year. And I was confused on if he was real or not in my dreams. But the difference is, is that when I was awake, I was not deluded to think he was alive. But in my dreams, I was. You see what I mean? 
<clears throat> and so these disciples who had these hallucinations or these visions of the risen Jesus, who was still dead in the grave in the tomb. So they began to look at the scriptures and try to reinterpret it and see how could the Messiah die? And if he reappeared, what could that mean? Could it be like a resurrection, something new? And so what Paul did was try to start explaining this. He believed that Jesus was historical, but was trying to explain his appearances. Uh, these revelations I have not received from men, but from Christ himself. This is the gospel I give to you. And so uh, he starts trying to explain Jesus through these Old Testament models. You look at Sarah, the free woman, Hagar, the slave woman, and you start seeing him talk about, well, at, according to the scriptures, uh, he was raised to third day. According to the scriptures, he was. Um, well, then you see this develop even more with the gospel accounts where it's not this mythology that the mythicists are accounting, but they are using Old Testament models. Oh, wow. Jesus is a lot like Moses. Jesus is a lot like Elijah. Jesus reinterpreted the law. Jesus came in power and, and blessed the Gentiles like Elijah and Elisha. Uh, raised that boy from the dead, you know, um, and, and people dif differ. And I don't know where Erman is. He said that he doesn't deny it for the miraculous, even though I don't think that he says that he believes in the miraculous. But, you know, you would give a story. Some would go so far as saying, okay, well, you have a story of Jesus feeding 5,000. It's not that he fed 5,000, but that he, he taught that we should give to one another. And that it, it, even though they were poor, once they shared, they realized they had plenty. And so they would say these legends developed around his teaching, but to make him more godlike. And out of this, out of these stories, came this unique blend of evangelism and exclusivity. If it remained only exclusive, then it would have been just like Judaism, stuck. If it was only evangelistic and not exclusive, then it would, it would just blend into the pagan myths. But there was this rare blending of evangelism and exclusivity that brought something new. And that their visions gave them a new vision of the world through the Jewish scriptures. So um, <clears throat> this became a powerful force in civilization and shaped Western civilization particularly. Um, I think this is a better explanation than the mythicist one but God takes scripture more seriously and tries to understand the intentions. And he doesn't see suspicious activity and power hungry people, but people desperate to believe and out of their desperation came something beautiful. What stands against this view that Jesus was historical, but not risen Lord. Okay. I'm getting close. This is, this is leading to my conclusion here. Okay, so what stands against this view that Jesus was historical, um, but not risen? Well, first, you have eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8, that there were eyewitnesses still living, over 500 of them. Paul is calling on them, you can ask these people. Um, you also see that Paul says, received... 
received from, uh, I receive this tradition and I pass on to you. Well, some people say, well, he only receives it from Christ, not from men. But that's not what he's talking about here. And in fact, it's a Jewish expression of talking about passing on tradition from rabbi to rabbi. And talking about I'm passing on the teaching that others have taught. And so I'm passing on the teaching from Peter and James and the other eyewitnesses that this is true. And he says, in fact, if Jesus did not rise again from the dead, then we are fools. We are worse to be pitied. We should be pitied. So he doesn't believe that it's simply a hallucination, which definitely was questioned. Why did Luke write his story two times in his narrative? Um, or maybe three. Can I? But it must have been a, not a hallucination, but a historic event. Now, people do have hallucinations massive but not separately, and then they corroborate. Also, the eyewitnesses in Mark's account are women. Paul, when he speaks of eyewitnesses, he only speaks of the male eyewitnesses, Cephas, James, the other brethren. He doesn't refer to the women. Why? Because women at the time would have been considered hysterical. They were honest but they were a little gullible uh, and that they weren't the strongest witness. They could be witnesses in a court, but they just weren't the strongest witnesses. If you had a man say it, then it was believable. Well, Mark's gospel account was written after Paul's letters. So why would Mark write a story where the women's eyewitness, the empty tomb come back and are disbelieved and then Peter and John go, why would Mark write that after Paul if it were not true? Why would it make your witness weaker? Why, why express that women were the first eyewitnesses if it were not historically accurate? You would just avoid it. The second one, so first eyewitnesses of the resurrection still living, can still verify and deny. Also, there's no good explanation for the empty tomb. There's no good naturalistic explanation for the empty tomb. Um, I already said about legendary stuff. There was never a tomb involved, so it couldn't be emptied. Uh, but why do the Gospels um, claim that he was buried and the tomb was empty if it was just a myth? Then you have swoon theory. Jesus was taken down a bit early and he was very, he struggled, but he lived for a couple more days and people thought, well, he's really strong to survive such a thing that he must be like a God. And then he dies. Um, but Jesus appears among 40 days after. Um, and in surprising ways. Some say, well, the body was stolen. This is a pretty strong one since Matthew Chapter 28 even talks about it. But it's confusing that the account are that the disciples are terrified. They abandon Jesus. They're afraid of crucifixion or being caught. And furthermore, they had no concept of a one-man resurrection. N.T. Wright talks about this a lot. They, the Jewish people only had a sense of a general resurrection. So it's kind of like me coming to you and say, hey, Julia disappeared. She was raptured, but we're going to keep on living. People wouldn't talk like that. 
the rapture is everyone or no one. And so um, not only it's, it was inconceivable, it was because the tomb was empty that they had to work it out. The same thing goes with hallucination. One, it's over 500 people, but all the individuals corroborated. Uh, Jesus and um, Paul had a vision, but then went to the disciples and they corroborated his testimony that he did, in fact, meet the risen Jesus. <clears throat> and people do have hallucinations, but they don't die on behalf of them. <clears throat> so something dramatic had to have happened. But how early did they know that Jesus was divine? Because Ermon would say, well, that's because in Luke, they would mention the ascension, not in Mark, but they mentioned the ascension in Luke because that's how he is exalted to be God. But the resurrection doesn't make him God. It's just an oddity. But from the earliest texts and all the texts believe Jesus to be God or divine. Philippians 2. Uh, and so Ehrman would say, well, he was just a divine, like he was just a Messiah that died, but they kind of exalted him. But it wasn't until John that he, they started thinking of pre-existent Jesus. In the word, the word was with God and the word was God. That was when it was really by 90 AD or 90 common era that they started thinking Jesus as God. So the church kind of created Jesus to be God. But that's not true from the text. In Philippians 2, Jesus did not grasp equality, but took on a human form, even to death on a cross, and then was exalted, name above all names, to be praised. So he was in the place of God and also shows preexistence. Colossians 1, it speaks of Jesus's preexistence, um, uh, from whom all things come and were created. Romans 11, I think it's Romans 11. Jesus is placed alongside God as there is only one God, there's only one Lord. And, and that is uh, taking apart the Shema, which is there's, there is the Lord your God, he is one. Uh, well, Paul breaks these together, puts them in parallel form, and says God and Jesus as Lord. And so you see that Jesus, Paul reconstructs the Shema to show that Jesus is divine. <clears throat> And in fact, we can even look at Mark. It says, I'm here to talk about the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, Jesus is able to walk on water. Uh, he's able to do all these miracles. And so Mark, from the very beginning, believes Jesus to be God. So why are there significant differences with the I am statements in John, not in the other synoptics? <clears throat> well, you got to remember, John said there's so many stories that many books could be written. Uh, and also, it, it pushes, Bart Ehrman pushes the contrast too far, that John and Mark have almost no resemblance to one another. But there's a lot of interlocking factors. Um, in fact, so most of uh, the Synoptic Gospels is dealing with Jesus in Galilee. But John deals mostly with Judea. Jerusalem. But in the Synoptic Gospels, they're afraid to go to Jerusalem, even though they only spent a couple days there. Why? Well, John explains, because Jesus has been doing all this stuff in Jerusalem. Also explains that how he would have known the disciples before he called them, because, uh, you know, Carrier and others would say, oh, Jesus walked up as a stranger and said, come and follow me. 
but he wasn't strangers to them. He has been, he had been a working wonder working teacher in their midst. And so they would have known him. He wasn't a stranger. Um, and so you see Jesus understanding himself as divine and articulating that, even though he didn't articulate the I am statements. Um, so there's lots to discuss between the difference between John and Mark, but I'm just making the point that they're interlocking and that they're not totally independent. John is not dependent. And a lot of people think that John wrote his gospel over here with some awareness, but didn't copy and wrote his own account. Now, the story seems somewhat different, but if you look at them, they, uh, the corroboration between the two show you that they're talking about the same account, even though they're not borrowing from one another, which only increases the likelihood of they, they really happened. <clears throat> so what about the apparent contradictions? Uh, I won't go too far into this. Um, you can ask me later, but just for... Let's just take Judas' example. How can he be hung and then his intestines blow and what happens to the field? Well, there is a, wa a way to work it out where it's not so far-fetched. Um, <clears throat> Jesus, I mean, um, Judas hung himself out of his guilt through the money at the priests. Well, the priests say, this is dirty money, so we need to use this money to buy a field. They go out to buy a field with Judas's money to buy a field, which would have been bought in Judas's name. So it can be attributed to him. And that why would, why would Judas's intestines spill out unless he had been hanging somewhere and they gathered together so that when they fell, it gushed out. And it's not too impossible that this is, the same area. It's not impossible. And so this is what commentaries and scholars and theologians try to do is try to reconcile these two pieces. But if you look at them, you see that there's two different accounts, but if you can find a story that reconciles them. Bart Ehrman just struggles with, with this and saying, well, you can always make any story reconcile if you really want it but it seems that Christians have to do it too often. And so he doesn't like the contra um, what are called apparent contradictions. They look like contradictions. Um, where <clears throat> Peter Williams argues with him, he says, there's just undetermined data. That means uh, there's not enough evidence to know. You can't favor one story over the other. You can't say they contradict unless you have evidence that they contradict. They look like they contradict to you, but there could be a story that adjusts it. Um, okay, I could talk about Jesus' genealogy, but I'm going to move on. Um, and then there's the nature of the Gospels themselves. Um, <clears throat> it's a unique genre. It was not written like an ancient biography, but, uh, and Ehrman says, well, because it's not like a journalistic chronological account, like we expect with modern day, um, that there's literary devices, then it, therefore it cannot be historically accurate. It cannot be a biography. However, Richard Burridge wrote a book called What Are the Gospels? And Joshua Chestnut, our colleague, has spoken on this, uh, um, uh, two lectures just on the nature of the Gospels and Ehrman. So if you want to hear more of that, you can read, um, listen to it on the Southboro podcast. 
But he's saying that the size of the scroll, the verbal structure, the details, and the size of it all, all account for biography. But the Gospels were unique because they were not just simply telling about a historical figure, but they wanted you to believe in him. And so the Gospels are a unique event. It's a unique genre. And so it's hard to have certain expectations of that genre if it had never existed before. And we have nothing else to compare it to. <clears throat> and what about the Gnostic Gospels? Uh, well... <laughs> I'll just use a modern analogy to quicken this up is that just because a Christian says something doesn't make all the other Christians believe it's orthodox. Uh, also, if you look at the Gnostic gospels, they're almost all sayings out of context and they don't make sense unless they're borrowing from the original gospels. So the Gnostic gospel and also the Gnostic gospels are dated later. So they are most likely a counterfeit of the original gospels and the Gospels that they steal from are the original four Gospels. So it's not like creating new stories except baby Jesus lasering people with his eyes, you know, like ridiculous stuff like that. I'm not going to spend time on that. And also that there's uh, the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts are tremendous. Um, so Ehrman would say there's copies of copies of copies. So how do we know what was transmitted is accurate? But that's the wonder of the New Testament documents, that there's so many copies that we can actually compare 5,000 copies to one another to see if they're accurate. And there's around 97 to 99% corroboration. And many of them, uh, like full text, uh, date back as far as 350 AD, so 320 years after Jesus died um, and rose again. But there's even fragments that date back to 150 AD uh, of John's gospel, so probably about a few decades after he wrote his. Now you'd be like, well, okay, well, that's not, that's okay, that's good. But compare it to the other ancient literature that we don't question as historians. Uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars there's only nine to ten to good. There's only nine or ten good copies, dated 900 years later. The Roman history by Livy, he had only 35 of the 142 books that he wrote survive, and only of that there's only 20 copies, and the oldest is from the fourth century. Histories by Tacitus, who I've mentioned earlier, quoted earlier about Jesus, we only have partial and remaining texts of his dating to the ninth and eleventh century. So 900 to 1100 years after. So of the Bible, we have over 5,000 Greek copies in part or in whole, going back to 350 AD. Some texts going back, um, some fragments back to 150 AD. Um, and so whenever I hear that there's new documents found, the Christians should rejoice because it's only going to reconfirm. Uh, and it seems that there's so many copies because the um, because they met weekly, they read and prayed and taught the scriptures and they copied it fastidiously and shared it with one another. It's going viral. It's going viral. <clears throat> so what best explains Christianity? This is where I end. <clears throat> What's the traditional <laughs> Ehrman, um Ehrman says, okay, I don't believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, but Christianity is rem a remarkable 
thing that happened and it changed the world. Jordan Peterson, who's also an agnostic, um, in his evolutionary understanding of consciousness, calls it the miracle of Christianity. Uh, how can you explain a theory that promotes weakness as strength, poverty as wealth, and dying as living, and having that take over the world? It confounds our natural arguments. And so really, the rise of Christianity is a riddle. Argument one is that there's an elite group of priests who are power hungry, who try to manipulate the masses into being good uh, so that they can take over the empire 300 years later. The second argument is that there's a desperate group of believers who are so desperate that they'll believe even hallucinations, but they will die for those hallucinations um, and uh, they will maintain it. I think, uh, and so Price says, like I said with Hume, we should believe the supernatural explanation only if naturalistic explanations fail to be as believable as the supernatural one. So if the natural explanation is not as good as the supernatural one, we should believe the supernatural one. But if we can find a good naturalistic one that's better than the supernatural, we should believe the naturalistic one. Well, I showed two of the strong arguments of Jesus as a myth and Jesus as a historical but failed prophet as a natural story that I believe fails to corroborate with the evidence we have. The supernatural explanation, I believe, is the best. So this is the story. Disciples of this figure, Jesus, walked around with him and saw him die. And 40 days later, began to proclaim him in the public squares where he was crucified, that he had risen again. Uh, and that these same leaders were presented in those same documents as foolish, slow to learn, afraid. So it makes, it's almost like a character assassination. And so they have disciples seeming dumb, not understanding, and yet they are now the leaders. It makes no sense unless they were personal eyewitnesses. <clears throat> and in uh, all the leaders, did they get these grand prizes of power? No, they all were martyred except John. They were imprisoned and they were killed in torturous ways and they didn't recant. You recant if you think it's a hallucination. You don't recant if you touch the living Jesus. And so it developed rap. And so this news to them, this, this good news, this is like a, a risen Messiah, a, a crucified and risen Messiah. That makes no sense. How do we understand that? We go back to the, we go back to the God, um, Old Testament scriptures and this theology developed rapidly across the world in a consistent way, not a hundred percent consistent, but there was so much um, sameness, similarities that is astounding in how quickly it was um, adopted and understood and believed. And that it included Gentiles. This can only be explained as sheer genius, but it's impossible to explain it as sheer genius when they are allowing themselves to die for these things. It could not be made up, but they had to have seen the risen Lord and all of this is byproduct of that supernatural event. So in conclusion, the best explanation cannot lead, um, must be the supernatural one. 
But even so, this, if you have all the historical evidence and the best story, it does not lead one to bend the knee and call on Jesus as their Lord. People saw Jesus in his own day and crucified him. Yet, as an explanation of the historical events of the improbable rise of early Christianity, with all its documentation, the supernatural one is the most probable. <clears throat> so one may find that the search for the historical Jesus impossible to discover because you cannot get behind the Gospels. You cannot get behind their claims of faith in him as God, as Messiah, as dying and rising. <clears throat> the historical portrait is too wound up with their beliefs and their claims. In order to get behind them, one has to construct a story that tries to better explain the story that is given in scriptures. And I think that that fails. The story that the scriptures give of what happened is the best story, and it has not been better replicated. Okay, so that's where I end. <clears throat>